sort similar to a metaphor for like power, um, you know, authority and, and uh, the things that you as a man would deal with in life, the temptations and the category, they're categorical, but they're deeper than just saying you're jumping off a cliff and the angels are Right, right. Yeah. Um, yep. And it's interesting for me because, I mean, to pick up what Catherine is saying, to, I mean, um, I don't think bread means just bread. Um, give us this day our daily bread. I, I mean, I, my understanding of that is it's, um, it's metaphorical. It's not literal. It's both. He means our daily bread, what we need for sustenance to live. Um, but it, to give us our daily bread means the Word of God. That, that feeds us. Without that, we're lost. But if any of you know anything about the social contract theorists, um, because we all live under a social contract um, idea of politics today, Locke, Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau were the social contract theorists, and they're the ones who formulated the political structure that really defines our modern world. It's what, whether we know it or not. And um, two of them thought that we were at a state of war, that nature was at a state of war. That was Hobbes' thesis, and Locke pretty much accepted it too. Man lives in a, man exists in a state of war. Nature is in a state of war. And the two driving forces are pride and fear. So if we're left to ourselves without a political structure, we'll kill ourselves. So what motivates man, the modern man, is self-preservation. They say, that's the, it's not love that's at the center of our being. It's self-preservation. So we're selfish. If we were left to ourselves, we'd kill each other. Huh. Well, we, I mean, that's, there's a truth to that. I mean, I, but I, I don't want to go into it. But that's the basis of modern political theory. And all of them say <clears throat> the only way we can avoid killing each other is through the social contract. I won't do this if you won't do this. So we, we make this compact. That's Hobbes, that's Locke, that's Rousseau, all of them. They're the modern founders of modern political theory. Um, so what's at the basis of <coughs> modern political theory is um, compromise. I won't kill you if you won't kill me. So we agree to get along in order to survive. <coughs> so when you read, you know, man doesn't leave by bread alone. In, in the modern context, I mean, you know how powerful this instinct is for self-preservation. Um, it seems to me it gains force um, in our modern world because of, you know, the conditioning, what we've grown up with for the last four centuries. But let's, let's start. Um, I'm sorry that we forgot these. I forgot them. Um, any, any prayer requests for this morning? I have a brother that's in critical care in uh, Maryland. He, it, it's a long story. He's had a, he, he's had a, he's 64 years old. He's had, uh, for the last 19 years, a double lung transplant. And he is having, he had a heart attack and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, we're in a touch and go situation for him. He has cancer as well. So. What's his name, Mary? Stephen. Stephen, okay. Mm -hmm. Anybody else? In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, um, thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, and uh, most especially um, the gift of yourself in the Mass this morning. 
um, I've been asking all of us to um, think seriously about this question, where are we um, after we receive communion? Because to carry you within us places us in your kingdom. Um, sometimes I think we just don't have the strength for joy. You know, we're so used to sorrows and getting along. Um, to feel, act, actually take a joy in being with you in your kingdom. Um, help us to do that, to feel your, our presence with you there, to bring your kingdom to the world in what we do, make it real. Help us, please, to do that. I ask a blessing on Stephen. Um, surround him with your protection, watch over him. Um, help the doctors do what they can. Um, let a miracle take place if, um, if it's your will and heal him. Um, if his um, time is coming near, um, help him to prepare himself um, to go to you and do it gladly. Do it gladly. I don't think it's easy for any of us. Um, help us to make the efforts that we should to get ready um, to meet you because we're going to, most of us in this room are close to our end, so help all of us to do that. And I ask that uh, Mary have a quiet heart um, to be strengthened in her faith. Um, I'm watching her brother go through this. Um, um, I offer a special um, thanksgiving, I hope, on behalf of all of us for the work that we're doing. I am constantly amazed that you guys are here um, when you could be doing other things. It's a testimony to how much how important learning is. Strengthen all of us in our efforts um, to be open to these people, what they have to give us. Um, even if it's dangerous, it means we have to make changes in our life once we see things in these readings. Help us to do it. And always to bring you to what we do with each other, especially in our families. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Um, I've, oh God, I've asked all of you if you would write notes to me, please, um, 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 telling me what the course has meant to you. You know it's been a concern all along. Um, I've never wanted this to be just literature, even though you know that's my focus. Um, I, I'm so wary of people who turn literature into something that it's not. So. I, I'm trusting I'm being faithful to literature and not making it into something that it's not um, here. But anyway, it's an important thing for me, so I'd like to hear from you all. And I'd also like to hear if you want to go on, because this is the end of it. Um, what I'd like to do here, because Dostoevsky, we plan to make Dostoevsky our last work. If, um, if some of you want to spend another month or so together, we can do Eliot's Four Quartets, which would be something I'd love to do again. But if not, if Dostoevsky is the end, what I would like to do um, is just offer this as a possibility for those of you who want to do it. Because we're not, we're not going to see Dostoevsky through spring. It, we just don't, I'm assuming we'll finish it in the next month. You know. um, what I'd like to do if that's our end this year is have a movie night, or maybe even two, have a movie once a month. By the way, we did uh, departures at Elizabeth Ann Seton. They loved it. Um, and there were boxes of Kleenexes at all the tables. It was, just, it was wonderful. It was wonderful to see it again. Um, um, yeah. Are, 
you know, and it, I haven't written you the letter yet. I've been sort of debating whether to make it 10 or 12 pages. <laughs> <laughs> on a serious note, on a serious note, I, I think, you know, there, there's a lady that was, had been here. She's not here today. I guess she said she's with you like five years, whatever. At Debbie? I don't yeah, know. I, I don't know. Anyway, yeah. the point is, some of us, so as to speak, have been with you like a year, six, nine months. And these things that you, this, this, category in the books that we read I never I never was in it in high school or college and so I'm getting something here that's a new dimension that is important to me to look at it from a different point of view so it's 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 uplifting at times it's difficult but I think you know as far as whether you should go on or not of course you should go on <laughs> well some people well, some people no, have been here for no but but I'm just saying a lot of these people here, I'm not speaking for everybody, but they haven't been exposed to this before. And to me, it's its a new horizon. It's a new insight. I'm always, just to complete the point, for those of us who've been here for many years, we're not really ready to see it end either. So. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I don't know where it goes from here, but I'm grateful. we enjoy coming. Yeah, yeah, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for those thoughts, generally grateful. So. Um. I, I was exposed to it in high school and college, but at a different level. Mm, yeah. I thank God that I was because when I heard, that, you know, about this, I thought, well, now I'll go see <laughs> what my perspective is 60 years later. How many years has it been? And so I'm so thankful. Yeah. <coughs> and for sure. And I think, but we've been here like I said, I was exposed to it earlier. Three, four. At a different level. This is the fifth year. But so I we've been here four years. We missed. We missed yeah. the first three books. I do and too. He started yeah. over. Here, let me just it. offer you this quick percent. syllabus for next year. I'm amazed. Okay. Still uh, no, uh, some reading. So um, <laughs> If we're going to do this next year, here's what I would like to do because I'm running out of things that will fit. You know, there's a lot of literature that I could do. I don't want to do it. It just it's, it doesn't speak to what we're doing. But next year, if we're going to continue, here's what I would like to do. I'd like to do Aeschylus's trilogy. That's the beginning of things, and it's, it's one of the most ghastly, <coughs> bloody plays or series of plays that you'll ever read. Um, um, chopping up kids and serving them. It's like a, it, it just, it's, a, it's like a parody. It, real, hold don't, don't this is Aeschylus. This is, this is centuries and centuries before Christ. It, it, it's about the curse on the house of Atreus, and it begins with um, serving the gods um, chopped up members of humans, and it's a curse that goes through, and finally goes to um, Agamemnon. Mary, I don't want. Can you move over towards Catherine? I don't want to miss your face. Can you move? Can you slide your chair over? Because I'm trying to stay sitting. Oh no, I've learned this in grade school. I sit behind a tall. No, God. <laughs> I want to see you. I want to see your eyes. Without, without anybody knowing it that way. Don't, you, can eat, you can eat here and not be afraid. So. Okay. Um, Aeschylus' trilogy begins with the Agamemnon. It's Agamemnon coming back from the war. From those of you who've read the Iliad, he's going to be killed by his wife. She's been plotting a murder because she's taking vengeance for his having taken their daughter's life as a sacrifice to start the war effort. So this element of sacrifice and to the gods and what it means. It, uh, there's already intuitions of what we know as the Eucharist and 
sacrificing. Um, the second play will be um, the, uh, the Libation Bears, because um, Apollo has called Orestes out to take vengeance on his father's death and kill his mother. Okay? Now, those of you who've been close readers will remember in the Odyssey, it begins with references, allusions made to Orestes, who had to do what he did, in order to encourage Telemachus, because he's getting nervous about setting off on his own to look for his father. He's not even facing close to what Orestes was. But those myths are already a part of the story. So there are all these backstories. You know, that the, you, you, Fred made the point earlier. He said, I'm so glad for him. You get to a point where you realize you can't read a story well and not see dozens of other things in it. I'm going to come back to this next week when we, when we do the, um, the um, Zosima biography part. Um, literature doesn't exist just within itself. It alludes to other works outside of it. And what it does is encourage us to see that it's almost like a timeless order. While we're in this work, in this time, we're also a part of other works at other times. So suddenly we're outside of time and inside at the same time. It's a pretty amazing way. I mean, the Eucharist should be doing that to us. Quite a bit. So anyway, um, Orestes is called out to take vengeance on his father, and he kills his mother. Imagine what a boy has to do with then, what he has to carry in his soul from that action. So in the next play, he's pursued by the Furies. I mean, so these are ancient things that modern psychologists would deal with when they're talking about the unconscious, or except here they're demonic. I mean, these are dark forces. <clears throat> the third play is, is called the Eumenides, because Athena and Apollo rep, um, take, basically take Orestes to court, both taking different sides, with the, against the Eumenides, the, the dark forces. What happens, the or the dark, the furies, huh? against the furies. furies, yeah, the dark forces. Um, <clears throat> what happens in that third play leads to the founding of Athens, the just city. So we're watching again a founding take place, and Athens will be like unlike any other city <coughs> in the world then, because most of the cities are dynastic and noble, and it's their nobility that leads to the horrors that happen around the city. You saw this in Chaucer, when we did Chaucer, remember the Knight's Tale? It was about coming from Thebes, the noble city, these two knights who loved each other, very noble, reach a point where they're going to kill each other over a woman because they've got these noble passions. Athens came into existence to, to begin something that was new in the world. That's how important it is. Aeschylus's trilogy is about the founding of the West again. So do those two, or sorry, those three. And then do Sophocles' Oedipus. I'm sure most of you have read it, but if not, Oedipus Rex. Except one of the reasons I want to do it is because lots of people read Oedipus Rex and they don't even have a clue that it was followed by what's called Oedipus at Colonus. After Oedipus blinds himself, when he learns that he killed his own father and slept with his mother, this is where Freud got it all, and where he got it all wrong. God. No, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. No, we'll, Speak to that when I get there, but um, he he killed his father and slept with his mother without knowing. When he learns that fact, he's outraged because he's he's thought to be the wisest man, the man of all the men around him. He's the one who answered the, the, the riddle of the Sphinx. 
Um, so when Oedipus Rex finishes, he's out on the stage with his eyes gouged down. He's just, they're caves with blood dripping from them. That's the last image. Oedipus Clonus, following the gods, he's going from there to Athens. And it's at Athens he will be received into this holy spot next to it. And what happens, it, it, I mean, it, it so closely corresponds to what happens with Mary, with Christ, John, that he's assumed. The gods welcome him in. Everybody comes to him before that welcoming because they know he's holy and they want his blessing. And this God, it's just amazing. They want his blessings. They want to use his holiness to support their political efforts. And they're killing each other. These are his sons. So he's a holy man. Everybody wants to gather around him to touch him because they know they will be empowered. And that means sometimes for the wrong reason. So both Aeschylus and Sophocles are coming to an understanding of holiness and the importance of the city, the, the, the just city, Athens, that separates the West from all other civilizations. So those are founding documents. They're, they fit with what we're doing. So I thought we would do those. So we'll go back, then go forward to um, Winter's Tale, I know we've done it, and um, Pericles, because I've wanted for the last year to do Pericles with you guys. It's just a special play, and we haven't, that's one of the plays we have not done. We might do Hamlet again if you want, but a couple of Shakespeare plays. And then I'm thinking about doing um, Jane Austen's Mansfield Park, because it's the only work she does where she gets close to something evil, and the heroine, I think, is the closest she got to somebody Christ-like. We may, I don't know. I've thought about doing um, Crime and Punishment, Dostoevsky. It's not as good as Brothers, but I know that's it. What about Billy Budd? Oh, Billy Budd. Billy Budd. Sorry, Billy Budd. So Shakespeare, Melville's Billy Budd. It's a short work, very short. It's explicitly dealing with Christ. Um, so... That would do it, and I think we could do that in a year. And after that, you're on your own. <laughs> Shall we take a vote? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, wait, sorry. What? Just because it was my, I mean, I, I, I really look forward to being with you guys, some of you. <laughs> you notice he's looking at me. Because <laughs> he enjoys being with you. <laughs> I hope you know by now that's a greater fondness. Um, I thought what we could also do, if there were time, because I'm not sure that will take us through the year, is take a gospel together, because we've not done a gospel, oh, yeah. and some yeah, readings. Yeah. Um, is there anything I, at Chester, Chesterton that we should do? I, we could do Everlasting, Ch Chesterton's Everlasting Man is the book that brought me in. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a collection of, it's about orthodoxy before he converted. But it, to me, it, it's the one that led me into the church. I'd be glad to do a work like that. It's, it's expository. It's not fiction. We've been dealing with fiction. Um, I'd be glad to do a, a gospel with everybody, you know, to, to look seriously and go through a whole gospel. And Which one would you choose? I, I, may, in fact, see, I've not thought about it, but it would be either Mark or Matthew for its length. Or, and then maybe do John, because John's mm -hmm. so different from the... Yeah, Synoptic Gospels. Yeah. So, yeah. so I ask. we may think John I mean, that may be worth. That may be really good to do. I I would enjoy going through a gospel. I mean, then we could do Revelation. 
<laughs> we could. I'd love to get your take on that yeah. one. Well, I'd love to hear your take. I'd love to do that. <laughs> anyway, that's so my that's got to be at least a year right there. You know? <laughs> okay, let's. Uh, that's, our, that's the. Um, I'm going to do. Um, Remember when we started last week, I took these, uh, I, I started reading these poems from uh, Rednati, the Hungarian poet who, who died. He was forced into um, camp slave labor on, on this trek. The Germans conscripted all of these um, Jews and um, forced them into labor, uh, I think constructing a road or doing something along the road. And if you remember, um, periodically when one of the men was so weakened by lack of food and work, they would execute them. And he was executed himself. Several months, several months after his execution, they, this group of men were thrown into one of these large community graves, you know, that they dug for men. They were exhumed, and they discovered in Ronati's body a, um, a notebook of the last poems that he'd written while, while on this. And remember, I, I read um, <clears throat> I read the one called Foamy Sky, you know, yeah, mm -hmm. where the, the, the sky is described in terms of a foamy kind of character. And I suggested it was, it was one of the expressions, it was an image of something toxic in the world that had been released in all the gases and bombings. And, and I wanted to read it because um, we're closer in time to Dostoevsky in the modern world, and it's also a world in which the state has become so powerful that it's produced all of these wars in the modern world, First World War, Second World War, bombs, um, machines. Um, so anyway, I read, uh, I read, didn't I read the fourth postcard? I, the, the, yes. I, yeah. I'm going to read that again, and then um, I want to just read um, another one of the postcards. So remember, the, the poem that I read last time was a collection of poems that were entitled Postcards, as if they were to be sent to somebody. Um, and he probably had some sense that he wouldn't survive, that um, um, he wouldn't see the people he was sending them to. Um, but So the last one, the, um, the fourth postcard. I fell beside him and his corpse turned over, tight already as a snapping string, shot in the neck. And that's how you'll end too, I whispered to myself. Lie still, no moving. Now patience flowers in death. What a beautiful metaphor. Because usually we think if we're patient, we'll survive it, we'll get out of it. Here he's saying patience will flower in death. Because um, he knows his end is inescapable. Then I could hear der Sprich noch af. I think it means he's still breathing. The German is saying, looking at the man that he just shot. Then I could hear der Sprich noch daf. Above and very near, blood mixed with the mud was drying on my ear. Um, he's lying on the ground next to him. And, um, may even be referring to him the one still breathing, who's just immediately to be shot. I don't think so, because I don't think he could have written that down, but... Another postcard, number one. Rolling from Bulgaria, the brutal cannonade slams at the ranges to hesitate and fade. Men and beasts and carts and thoughts are jammed into one. 
neighing, the road rears up, the main sky will run. It's like the land has become an animal. When <clears throat> you're the only constant in the changing and the mess, you shine on eternal beneath my consciousness, mute as an angel wondering at the catastrophe or the beetle of burial from his hole in a dead tree. It's interesting for to think that of the scene and from the perspective of an, of an animal looking on because what's taking place is so inhuman, so insane. Um, Okay, Dostoevsky. I, I want to just quickly review. Um, um, I went back last time we met to do a, a, a brief church history to give you some sense of the context for Dostoevsky's work. Um, because if we don't see it, there's just a lot we'll miss. And remember, we talked about um, um, the, um, the center of power shifting from Rome as a secular state um, in three, I think it was 330 when Charlemagne moved it to the Byzantium culture um, and named it Constantinople. And that became the center of power. It was the center of power when Boethius got accused of plotting against um, Theodoric, who's the king. Because the tensions between Latin Rome and Greek um, Constantinople were great as you can imagine, the vying of power. In the 15th century, the Turks conquer Constantinople, and that brings really to an end part of what was going on with the, Roman Holy, the Holy Roman Empire, but certainly with Constantinople as a center of influence in the West. And it goes east and north to Russia, <coughs> to Moscow. And the Russians look at Moscow as um, the new Rome. The czars are called the czars are called czars from Caesar, the the ruler. Um, one thing I want to just keep in mind: remember that when this all began, when these the struggles between church and state, church and state began, Galatius came out with that letter. I, I gave it. Um, I gave you that a copy again of that little thumbnail sketch of history that I handed out when we did Dante. Galatius writes that letter and said, two there are, two powers, authorities." And he took that from Christ who said, give unto Caesars what Caesars, give unto God what's God. And there are two swords, wielding power. And it was understood that the church was the superior, because it had to do with soul, with God, and the state was the inferior. But from what Christ said, it's clear that each of them, God and Caesar, is sovereign in their own world. Caesar has that power by virtue of God, but he's still the ruler. That's why all the early apostles wrote these letters asking Christians to obey their civic leaders. So there were these constant struggles between church and state claiming their <coughs> absolute powers. And we saw that when we did Dante. I'm just going to run through some of them. Um, remember the investiture conflict, that kings had been investing um, priests. Um, simony was a major sin in Dante. I mean, he, we've gone through all that. The, churchmen were taking over political property and gaining power and the, the church or the state ruler wanted control over them to help increase his power, his control over things. So they were always at, at odds with each other. Um, Thomas Becket was killed because of that. Henry wanted more power. He thought he'd get it with um, Becket's support. He didn't. Adam assassinated. 
So the struggles went on. Remember, I'm, I suggested to you, it's really pretty much of an argument on my part, that um, those, those conflicts are still going on in Dante's time, but they've reached a point where they're more sorted out than they were through all of the Middle Ages. And it was because of those struggles that a new, out of those struggles came this new concept of an independent state. Remember the Burger Republics. The first Burger Republic came into existence exactly on the year that Dante was born. The Burger Republics. It's, people were no longer obligated to the emperor or the pope. They were free. Remember Dante was, remember the Guelphs and the Ghibellines for the church and the state. And the Guelphs divided down into the white and blacks. The blacks went for the church to remain with the church. And the whites wanted their independence and Dante was a white. Because he believed it was important for a commune to come into existence where they, people weren't forced to follow religious beliefs. That they would come to their uh, beliefs freely. That's the prototype, I argued, for modern America. It's a republic. It's a commercial republic, exactly like ours. So that there's a freedom from both of those powers. <coughs> and men, men have experienced a degree of freedom they never had known before. So we're on the verge of the threshold of the modern world. Some of the, some of the conflicts um, become clear in 800 Charlemagne crowned. He was crowned by the pope. Remember um, Henry IV deposed the Pope. He, want, he himself wanted to have power to select the other. Um, Henry II um, had Becket executed. Remember um, Boniface um, claimed earthly powers um, in excess of those he should have. That's why Dante was so critical of him. Um, the investiture conflict. We can go on and on. The, the battles between the two uh, continue. Calvin wanted to establish a civil religion. Henry, remember, claimed to be head of the church. That's what started the Reformation. Um, um, Dostoevsky is very critical of Luther. I, I'm surprised he doesn't mention Calvin, but he mentions Luther often, and, and he, clearly Luther's a villain, because in taking away the sacraments, he moved religion in the direction of accommodating with the state, or even taking over the state, like Luther. Um, to, to become the, uh, um, uh, what is it called, a theocracy. You know, um, the French Revolution, more recently, confiscated church properties. We, uh, when we read um, Hopkins the Windhover, we were talking about what happened in Germany when they um, confiscated the church properties and, and forced the nuns into exile. They crossed the channel and died. That's 1850. You know, that's, that's our time. So the, the strains between church and state have gone on forever. Um, 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 John Paul II made a point in, in the early part of his um, papacy to tell the priest stand of politics. He was not saying don't speak, but what he was saying is don't let politics determine your service to God because there's a higher calling. Um, so one of the strains of the church has always been to keep priests free of obligations of the state, because if they did, they'd be making compromises, because that sort of stuff goes on always. So. Jay? I was just going to mention 1960, the Democratic presidential primaries in a number of states, one of the issues was there were people who thought John Kennedy would right. take his orders from the Pope. Right, right. Uh -huh. yeah. yeah, it was, it was 
an amazing event historically for Americans because the first for a president who was a Catholic to be elected was unheard of. I mean, just absolutely unheard of. Um, so that's the background. And remember that as we get closer to our time, Peter the Great had gone west. Um, he'd, he'd lost a number of battles in his attempts to take over Finland and the northern part of Turkey. And he went west to learn and brought back all these technologies and all this learning and set the landed class for their education there. And so what's happening in <coughs> mid-19th century is, and, and the capital was shifted from Moscow to St. Petersburg, and St. Petersburg was made an artificial city. It, it was created along modern rationalistic lines. So there's this strong influx of intellectual ideas. You're taking what, what at that time was a feudal world based, composed largely of serfs with um, radical distinctions between classes, the poor and the, the, the ruling family, and transforming it. There, there were revolutions shortly after Dostoevsky's time wanting to have a more democratic country. But it all happened abruptly. The suggestion I made last time was everything that happened in the West happened gradually, even with its revolutions, until the French and American revolutions. That's a radical change. But it's still relatively stable, gradual. Philosophy, religion are in concert, roughly speaking. In, in Russia, that's not true. It's a peasant, uneducated people. It's, it's, it's deeply religious in its faith. The Orthodox religion is genuinely deep. Um, and suddenly you get on all these modern notions and um, part of what you're claiming, anybody who's religious looks back to a superstitious world that should be gotten rid of. We, we get that all the way in characters in the, in the book. So suddenly this, this, this old traditional way of acting is threatened, attacked, uprooted, and people are in this, in this cultural dislocation that's going on. That's where we were. Um, <clears throat> so one of the important themes that underlies the whole book is this theme of cultural dislocations. The two worlds are in conflict, this old traditional way of doing things and this new modern progressive um, that's skeptical and for the most part denies religion altogether um, coming into conflict. And people are, uh, people are living at that conflict in the book. Um, by the way, just a, um, I, I said this on uh, Tuesday night when we were doing uh, um, departures, that if you remember that movie, that's exactly where we are. There's an old samurai way of looking at the world. And into that, into that world comes Western influences, largely Christian, and changing it. So you've got a man, you've got a man, not with a sword, you've got a man playing a cello. And if you remember the movie, and think, this is the cultural background, the samurai background is you want, they still produce Samurai's movies. That's how important it is for that culture. We, we produced Tom Cruise's Last of, the, Last of the Samurai. Last of the Samurai, that world's going. If you watch that movie, you remember it. So instead of a man being born with a sword or being raised into a sword, he plays a cello in an orchestra. If you remember, the orchestra collapses and he has to go home and he has to save face. And what does he find there? That old woman who's trying to hold on to a bathhouse and because her son is saying, sell it and replace it with condominiums because he can get wealthy. So this old way of life is being trashed 
And if you remember the man, he can't admit to his family that he's working as a preparer. He was working for an undertaker. I can't remember. Yeah. Casket. Huh? Casket. <coughs> Casket. Er. Casket. Well, there was another word. It had to do with preparing the dead. But anyway, the, he prepares the dead. And if you remember, when he's learning, the master is practicing on him, and he covers him with shaving, and he shaves him. He gets this little scratch, if you remember, and he falls to pieces. It's a little scratch. You can't be farther away from a samurai warrior. And in the very next scene, when he has, if you remember all this, remember, scratches and goes nuts. And the very next scene, he has to go on his first case, and they walk into a house which is dilapidated and ruined, and it smells because the body's in decay. Remember, he stands outside the curtain, he throws up because he's so sickened by the stench. And it's at that point that he wants out, and he goes to the bridge where he sees the fish you know, going under and watching the dead fish coming back. And his boss turns up at that point and mysteriously turns up at that point, and, and he wants nothing to do with him. But he goes back ready to quit, and the boss gives him, I think, some more money, and they're called onto a case. In the very next case, he watches the boss do what he does. And if you remember the scene, the boss is so reverent. It's a holy moment. It, it is formal. It's like a ritual. It's almost sacramental. The young man watches, and he's caught. He knows. For that. And then shortly after that, his wife finds out, and she wants him to leave. So you're watching a culture move from a samurai culture to a guy who plays a cello, in, which in that time would have seemed effeminate, who gets a scratch and goes nuts, who vomits. So this is not the epic world. <laughs> this is the modern world and the world of modern novels. This is where we are here. Ordinary, foul, unpredictable. It's our world. Um, so that's where we are with Dostoevsky. The world is changing, and people are in the midst of it. It's, one of, it's the central theme, in some sense, underlying the whole thing. Remember I said that the novel was different from the epic because the epic looks back to a closed past. We enter it through memory, mimosine. Sing muse of the anger of Achilles. It can only be told through the help of the divine. The modern novel is told by humans. The divine's gone. We've entered a world of the present. It's open-ended, it's indefinite, it's messy, it's familiar, it's unheroic. This guy playing a cello, vomiting when he walks into a room that's so foul and stench that he can't breathe. We're in our world. It's, the, it's full of grotesque things. The center of this book, Zosima's going to die. And everybody expects there to be no odor as a sign of his holiness. And I just, you know, at the beginning of class I was speaking to it, that when he does die and there isn't an odor, all of the monks who are envious of him have nothing good to say about him. All they do is fault him. They, they say, that's a sign that he was unholy. God's finger is pointing at him. And it's a moment of crisis for Alyosha. <coughs> um, so um, right at the center of this is the foulness of a body corrupting of, of a man that was thought to be holy. You know, and it takes up a whole couple of chapters. This is not the epic world. We're not going back to a closed world. We're in an open-ended present. Um, we're in the world of the novel. Okay. Um, the themes that I want to focus on today, the historical implication of this, the novel itself, um, and I want to introduce uh, sorry, a term called 
Philippian satire. It's a form of parody um, that's special. And if we get to it, um, the Grand Inquisitor. Let's take a look. Um, I want to go back now um, with this idea of um, a, a couple of things in the background to hold a couple of things together. One, Manipian satire, and you're not going to get it for a minute, but hold on to it. I'm going to come to it in a minute. And the differences between men and women, which are fundamental to this book, you know. Um, and by the way, just to underscore how important this is, um, I remember I, I introduced, I think I introduced the term um, dia dialogic um, from Bakhtin. So these two terms, Manipian satire and dialogic, are important to hold on to because they help us understand what we're dealing with. We're not, we're not in the epic world anymore. The best way that I can explain it, I think, is take go back to Moby Dick, those of you who've done Moby Dick, or even Scarlet Letter, because we've done that recently. If you go back to either of those books, you will not find, on, in Moby Dick, you will not find any of the shipmen talking with each other in an important way. They don't exist. The, the plot is carried by Ahab and Ishmael. And you know that the far greater number of them are with Ishmael <coughs> meditate, contemplating nature. <coughs> Gradually dissociates from Ahab's quest and is taken by the wonder of things. So he's talking about the whalebone or the head of the whale or the sea or, you know, whatever, whatever is there. He meditates and he finds being everywhere. And he's, he's enchanted by it and in love with it. <coughs> Melville finds nothing but evil. <coughs> but you do not Ahab. get, Ahab. sorry, Ahab. Um, but you don't have conversations between people, and we don't have, we don't hear any conversations between men and women in any meaningful way. You don't hear those conversations in Scarlet Letter until Dimsdale and Hester meet in the forest. And for the first time, it's, for me, it's like confession. For the first time in the novel, both of those feel a freedom because they can be who they are in sin with each other. They're not trying to pretend to be somebody they're not. She could, you know that she takes up her cross in pride too much because um, she's fighting off a condemning culture. And Dimsdale's trying to be somebody he's not. When they meet in the forest, it's like going to confession because for the first time, they can be together in freedom because they know each other in their sins. They don't have to try to be somebody they're not. And that's the first real exchange. And you know that something not good comes out of it because the answer of Hester is, go away. And remember when they come out of the forest, Dimsdale has all the, he, it's like an evil has been released. He's whispering sinister things in the ears of maidens and trying to offend ministers. And so what Hawthorne is showing us is, or, yeah, is that once you're released from the work of grace, and you're trying to be the natural man again, unprotected by grace, your natural inclination is evil. But we don't get serious discussions. You can't read brothers without finding men arguing with each other, quarreling with each other, men and women at each other, women and women at each other. There's conflict and disagreement everywhere. At a natural level, 
And it's impossible to read any of them without realizing the great issues are church and state and um, holiness. Um, but there's a dialogic quality that, that, that becomes the, an important ingredient of the modern novel. It's not going back to a closed world that's already set. It's open-ended. That means the arguments themselves tend to be open-ended. They're not conclusive. Um, we're in an open-ended world. Um, so what I want to do is <coughs> go back to the beginning, um, but look at it a little bit differently. So if you go back to page, say, 44. This is when all of the men are coming. Um, Alyosha suggested to Dmitri and his father that they go to the monastery in the hopes that Zosimov can settle their quarrel um, over the inheritance, because you know that Dmitri wants his money um, in order to pursue Grusenka and pay off Katrina. Um, when they meet, I remember, I, I, um, I want to take you back for a moment um, to um, I'm going to come back to the middle. You know that the men meet. Oh, no, I'm going to do it. T turn to page 40. <coughs> Fyodor and Yusuf arrive late, and Fyodor, being who he is, makes a fool of himself by making it an issue on 40. He says, um, uh, middle of 40, it's precisely the time my son Dimitri still isn't here. I apologize for him, sacred elder. I myself am always very punctual to the minute, remembering that the punctuality is the courtesy of kings. Not that you're a king, muttered Musov, unable to restrain himself. That's exactly defining for everything that takes place between them. Theodore is going to make himself a fool. He's going to say silly things, and Musov is going to call him up on it. That's the, that's the conflict, the agon. Um, he... Um, he recalls this episode with a colonel where he kept playing, making puns on this name, Napravnik. Um, I said, and so to speak, Yuri Napravnik, who was a famous composer. Um, he was punning on the guy's name, and the guy says, um, I am an Ispravnik, and I will not allow you to use my title for your puns, and he got offended. And he recalls making this um, joke about the woman being ticklish, and um, which means um, sensitive, but it's 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 used here. He plays on the word in a sexual way, and so the the guy takes real offense and tickles him. I think he gets some beating or something. Um, in the middle of forty one, well, at that he gave me quite a tickling, but it was a long time ago, so I'm not even ashamed to tell you about it. I'm always. Um, damaging myself like that. You're doing it now, Yusuf said. The elder silently looked from one to the other. And then um, Piotr says, middle of the next paragraph, um, I'm a natural born buffoon. I am Reverend Father, just like a holy fool. I won't deny that there's maybe an unclean spirit living in me too, not a very high caliber one. By the way, uh, by, by the way otherwise he would have chosen grander quarters. Um, 43, he continues in his vein, and Musa responds in his vein, taking him to task. Middle of 41, 
Um, great elder, speak and tell me whether I offend you with my livelihood or not, Theodore asked. Um, Zosimus says, I earnestly beg you to not to worry and not to be uncomfortable, but be at ease and feel completely at home, and above all, do not be so ashamed of yourself, for that's the cause of everything. Now, for a moment, it's as if Theodore is relieved to hear somebody say that. It's as if he doesn't have to strain himself anymore. But then he goes on and makes fun again on page 44. Um, the elder Zosimov says again, you've known for a long time what you should do. Theodore's just asked, what should you do about it? You have sense enough. Do not give yourself up to drunkenness and verbal incontinence. Do not give yourself up to sensuality and especially to the adoration of money and close your taverns if you cannot close all of them, at least two or three. And above all, above everything else, do not lie. And he makes a joke about about Diderot, you mean, um, because so much of what everything, so much of what um, Fyodor is doing is really a subtle lie. He's not being honest. Now hold on to that, because I want to come back to it, but go forward now. Zosimov leaves to talk with these women. Go on over to 47. I don't want to look at all of them. The first one I'd mention, it's about this woman who's a shrieker, like Alyosha's mother, who's known as a shrieker. But whenever she was taken to the Eucharist, she would be calmed. And lots of people scoffed at it. Modern, the modern ones who were influenced by modern psychology would downplay that and said it was something else. And others said all she needed was a good stern taking up her. You know, it's these different ways of approaching something that's out of character or out of the norm. Um, the second woman comes with a child and weeps hysterically. She can't stop weep weeping. Um, come on. Better life than not at all. Yeah. Pull up a chair. Here, Linda. Is Tom coming? Oh, no. no, you sound like you got a cold, too. Here. Actually, sit in front of Mary. That way I can see her. <laughs> here. here. No, no, come over here. No, that, I don't want her to. No, no Don's sitting there. Don's I know, I was going <laughs> to. Um, she can't stop crying. She's so emotional. And um, Father, oh, sorry, Zosima tells her, keep crying, but go back to your husband. <coughs> uh, your sorrow is good, um, but don't let it keep you from her husband. So she has to go back. Um, the third widow thinks she's lost her son, that he's dead, and she's praying for him as a dead man. And this is the first time Zosima gets really serious, and he says, don't do that. It's like a form of blasphemy that he's not dead, um, and tells her, go home and pray, and your son will return. The priests are, this is one of the th reasons the priests are envious, because the next day we learn that her son wrote a letter and he is alive, and he's returning. So it's like Zosima performed a miracle. And they hate him all the more for doing that because it's something they can't do. So it just deepens the envy. Um, go to 51 now. A woman comes up to um, 51. Um, she's a widow for three years. Her husband abused her physically, beat her. And 
she says at the bottom 51, my married life was hard, he was old, he beat me badly. Once he was so sick in bed, I was looking at him and I thought, what if he recovers, gets up on his feet again, what then? And then the thought came to me and we don't get the answer. Wait, he says, he puts his ear to her and she whispers. What does she say to him? I murdered him. <coughs> Good. I'm glad there's somebody else that's mean too here instead of <laughs> On Monday night, half the class said she wanted to kill her husband. I thought, you guys are too nice. Um, I'm, I'm the bad one here. She killed him. She killed him. Yeah. She killed him. He's dead. She's a witness. Anyway, on 52, did you tell the confession? I did twice. I confessed it. Were you allowed to receive communion this time of 52? I was. I'm afraid, afraid to die. Do not be afraid of anything. Never be afraid and do not grieve. Just let repentance not slacken in you, and God will forgive everything. There's not and cannot be in the whole world such a sin that the Lord will not forgive. We're going to find this over and over, too. But notice how firm he is. Um, you, you've had to confess, and he says, do not slack in your repentance. Don't grieve over it. Don't Remember what David did after he killed. I mean, he washed up and do not grieve, but don't not stop repenting. So it's like, pen, it's like purgatory. Carry on, be glad, um, but do not carry this darkness. Let it go. Because to do that is to make your sin worse, greater than God's mercy. That's a sin. That's despair. Um, finally, go on over. Um, the last woman comes, and she's troubled by a lack of faith. The bottom of 53. Um, he um, was also going to ask her from what? I suffer from lack of faith. Lack of faith in God, she says, not at all. Um, what, she's, um, what troubles her faith is her, is her not being able to believe in the immortality of the soul. She says that's where it goes bad for her. And she says, um, middle of 56, Though I believed only when I was a little child, mechanically, without thinking about anything, how, how can it be proved I've come now to throw myself at your feet and ask you about it. How can it be proved? He says by actual love, active love. She says she can love man, <laughs> this is so good, she can love man universally in her head, in an abstraction, you know, we can all love man. But she says whenever she gets in close to anybody, it's like any of us if we see a pimple or bad breath or um, we don't like somebody's manners or whatever it is, it's much harder to love what's really real, not an abstraction. And he tells her that she has to actually love to make it a practice. And he makes it clear that, um, that she can't do that without hard work. Um, the top of 58. Above all, avoid lies, all lies, especially the lie to yourself. This is like to um, Karamazov. Keep watching your own lie and examine it every hour, every minute, and avoid contempt both of others and of yourself. What seems bad to you in yourself is purified by the very fact that you have noticed it in yourself. That means, if you go back to Dottie, a grace is working in her, or she wouldn't see it. Because remember, what defines the people in hell is they've lost the use of their intellects. They don't reflect. They don't acknowledge their sins. They're trapped. Um, um, what seems bad to you in yourself is purified by the very fact that you have noticed it in yourself and avoid fear though fear is simply the consequence of every lie. Never be frightened at your own faint-heartedness of, of attaining love. And meanwhile, do not even be very frightened by your own bad acts. I'm sorry that I cannot say anything more comforting. 
for active love is a harsh and fearful thing compared with love in dreams. Love in dreams thirsts for immediate action, whereas active love is labor and <coughs> to love somebody, ask something else. So, before we go to the men, um, how is this one woman different from the other women? Or characterize the women generally. How would you characterize the women generally? She didn't kill her husband. <laughs> Not, neither did all the other women. <laughs> I'd say, how, how is she different from all the other women? I'd say they're speaking honestly. They're speaking their truth. They're not uh, hiding behind any facade. You don't think she is the woman lacking no, faith? No, I think that the women are speaking the truth. They're not hiding behind any facade or appearances. All the women? Yeah. Yeah. But this one woman, how is she different from them? And she sees her flaws. Not, not all of them. As you progress through the book, you see them, well, Kachinka, for, for one thing, I mean, in the beginning, she she doesn't really, we don't see her seeing her flaws. Later on, she does. Yeah, I think the that scene with Alyosha, the, what he does helps draw her out. Yeah. All the women are very emotional, given to their emotions, <clears throat> all of them. This is the one woman whose trouble comes from thinking about what she wants is a proof. That's what all the men are dealing with, and I'm going to turn to it in a second. All the men are in their heads dealing with intellectual things. All the women are emotional, given to their emotions, except this one woman. And what's an issue for her is that she can't prove something with her mind. I'm saying that, and I think this is important. She's the last woman to deal with it in this whole group of women. I don't think that's an accident. It's Dostoevsky's way of calling attention to that, that even the women are being influenced by these intellectual ideas. And it's led her, all these other women have faith. She's the one who, who's, who's struggling with faith, and her faith doesn't deal with God. She makes it clear she did. She can't make an intellectual proof. And I, I gave the irony, I mean, this, it's one of the ir ironic illustrations for me of a, something to be important. Remember I said, in the West, philosophy and religion grew up together. Plato and Aristotle both intellectually proved the existence of God. Aristotle's mo proof by motion is one of the ones that St. Thomas uses. Contingency and motion are two of the proofs. Um, there has to be something to put something else in motion. If you just keep going back, you have to come back to a first mover or you have no explanation. Same thing with contingencies. If something's contingent, something had to be contingent, you have to go back to an uncontingent, uncontingent cause for an explanation. So Plato and Aristotle proved the existence of God and Plato proved the immortality of the soul. Those were rational proofs. They weren't Christians. They were trying to understand the nature of things. But that's a tradition that Russia doesn't have. It didn't grow up with philosophy. So suddenly you've got all these people dealing with intellectual problems and their influence, the force of them, with nothing to help them. It's like stepping into a void. So it's interesting to me that he's, he gives a chapel chapter to a woman, you know, dealing with faith, the woman with no faith, and, and that her struggles are intellectual. 
She wants to prove something. She can't. And I'm not sure anybody around her could give a proof. <coughs> they don't have the intellectual means. We, we should. I mean, we've got, if you can't get, we should. Or, I mean, you know, they've been given in our tradition. But Let me turn to the men now, because I want to um, get to this idea of, now you remember what happened before. Before he left, Theodore and Musev were constantly going back. And bef before, we, before we look at our, uh, our system, so afraid I'm going You remember <coughs> when Theodore's making a fool of himself and Musev's going, stop <coughs> being an idiot. You remember Zosima's response to that moment. What was it? Do you remember? Did he get upset? Did he have to make excuses or do anything? He being Zosima or Theodore? Um, Zosima. He, he says to Theodore, I earnestly beg you, do not worry. Can you say of Miasov that he's ever free of worrying about what Theodore's going to do? He, he cannot let go of it. Before he came, he was on guard because he knew it would happen. So every time Theodore says something, Miasov says something. He does everything he can to dissociate himself from him. I knew he was going to do this. I didn't want to do this. Don't look at me. And then Zosimus says, I earnestly beg you not to worry, not to be uncomfortable. Be at ease and feel completely at home. And above all, do not be so ashamed of yourself, for that's the cause of everything. What does Zosimus' comment tell us about both Miasov and Fyodor? They're wrapped up in their ego. Flesh that out, yeah. oh. meaning what? They're, um, <coughs> they're worried about themselves. They're worried about, they're worried about how they appear. Mises is more concerned about appearances because he has, and we've been talking about respectability for the last two years, after, for certainly after Moby Dick, because respectability is essential, but when it becomes an end in itself, it becomes enabling. People hide behind it. So is Zosima troubled at all by what Fyodor is doing? Why? Why not? Well, because he's carrying his own self. Because those things don't matter as much to him. Right. We know from everything Miyasov's doing that he's, he identifies himself with this intellectual class. <coughs> he thinks he's one of them now, that he's better than other people, and the proof of it is his <laughs> manners. I don't make an idiot of myself like this guy. I want to be. Di He's doing exactly what the Puritan group did in Scarlet Letter, in relation to Hester. She didn't conform, or Anne Hutchinson. He sees himself among the proper, and he keep, everything he does shows how vain he is. He he want he wants to accuse constantly accuse Theodore to show how good he is. Yeah that he follows manners. Zosima is not bothered at all. Why? Because he's not caught up with manners. His call is to love. And you, if you read on, you know he says over and over again, I'm the worst of the worst. Those of us who are here at the monastery, if we don't see ourselves as the worst of the worst, we shouldn't even be here. He's a sinner. He's there to bring Christ to people to love everybody, no matter what they're doing. So he's not defining himself by codes of respectability. He's, he's embodying love. He, he just is not he's comfortable. Do not be ashamed. 
What's Miyasov doing? He's constantly ashamed, which shows he's more concerned about himself than he is of others. Now let's look at the men. I mean, because that was the start. Zosima leaves, and now he comes back. And what he comes back to is this argument between, or that the priests are having with Ivan on page 60. He, he re-enters the room and the men are in the middle of this discussion. And here, notice the difference. The men are in this intellectual discussion. The women are there for blessings. Um, bottom of 60. Unfortunately, I have not read your article, but I've heard about it, the elder replied. He stands on a most curious point, the, the librarian says. Apparently on the question of ecclesiastical courts, he completely rejects the separation of church and state. This is Ivan's, Ivan's argument, 61, middle of the first paragraph. Compromise between the state and the church on such questions as courts, for example, is, in my opinion, in its perfect and pure essence, impossible. The argument that he was responding to was written by a churchman. So this is a churchman making an argument. Compromise between the state and church on such questions, for example, is in my um, impossible. The churchman with whom I argued maintains that the church occupies a precise and definite place within the state. I objected that, on the contrary, the church should contain in itself the whole state and not merely occupy a certain corner of it. And that if for some reason that's impossible now, then in the essence of things it undoubtedly should be posited as the direct and chief aim of the whole further development of Christian society. <laughs> Not surprisingly, Musev says, sheer ultramontanism, Musev exclaimed. Um, do you all know what mon ultramontanism Does anybody? I looked it up and I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> do you know, Jay? I, it's, it's a term I'd never heard of before, even after we entered the church, and I never hear it used. Except it's so clear to me, from what I have read on it, that in some circles it's defining. Ultramontanism was a word used for people outside of the church who were trying to defend the orthodoxy of the church to refer to the church itself and the authority of the papacy. They were trying to hold on to the papacy when they were coming from nations that were undergoing changes and losing their religious base. So they were looking to the authority of the church and seeing, giving it an absolute um, infallibility, an absolute power. <clears throat> so in some sense, from the Russians' point of view, it's a way of describing what, from their perspective, is an absolute power that the church has, or claims to have, when it doesn't. And, and as a progressive, because um, Musev clearly is a modern intellectual who wants to see the church undermined, he, he's objecting because he sees this is claiming too great a power for the church. Okay. Senator, can I go back to the whole free will? discussion though in a sense that you know the church the church is telling you what you should do and how you should do it but the fact that you have free will makes it possible for you as long as you're within the laws of the state able not to do it whereas if the church and the state were all one and the same then the church could tell you what to do and then make sure that you do it hold on <coughs> if you can. Okay. Hold on. Because that's where we're going to go. But isn't that sort of... It, yeah, they are. But okay. let me, yeah, let me... I want to be careful right now because I want to hold on to the text, but yes, 
But hold on for a second, okay? Just hold on. Um, Father um, Iosuf, the librarian, says, ah, but we don't even have any mountains. Um, incidentally, replied to the following basic and essential propositions of his opponent, who, mind you, is a churchman. First, this is the churchman's argument, first, that no social organization can be or should arrogate to itself the power to dispose of the civil and political rights of its member. That's a, I think that's a libertarian position, if I'm understanding correctly. Second, that criminal and civil jurisdiction should not belong to the church and are incompatible with its nature, both as, divinely as a divine institution and as an organization of men for religious purposes. And finally, third, that the church is a kingdom not of this world. Pacey objects to all of that, but he accepts the, the premise that um, the state should gradually be absorbed into the church until over time the church will be everything. Uh, because he believes, I mean, that's his argument. He believes that, that Christ is going to come at some point and call everybody to account. On page 62, um, essentially this is undoubtedly what had to happen, but Rome as a state retained too much of pagan civilization and wisdom, for example, the very aims and basic principles of the state. Whereas Christ Church, having entered the state, no doubt could give up none of its own basic principles of that rock on which it stood, and could pursue none but its own aims, once firmly established and shown to it by the Lord himself, among which was the, transform, the transforming of the whole world. Now notice, this simply con it contradicts this notion that, that we talked about when we dealt with Dante, the, the two swords that Glacius talked about in his letter, there are two swords. Christ had given to Caesar and given to God. So there are two different authorities that are distinct, and their distinct powers are, are supposed to be protected in their own orders. Thus, that is, for, um, for future purposes, it is not the church that should seek a definite place itself in the state like any social organization, go down, but on the contrary, every earthly state must eventually be wholly transformed into the church and become nothing else but the church. And um, some of the priests say, so be it, so it be it, let it be. Um, Muses says on 63, down if you like, that is as you place a beautiful utopian dream, the disappearance of wars, diplomas, banks, and on and on, something even resembling socialism. I hope you're all, the current situation is resonating in everybody here. Here's the problem, here's the problem, 63. If everything became the church, then the church would excommunicate the criminal and the disobedient and not cut off their heads. Where, I ask you, would excommunicated man go? Now the problem, and Zosimov hits on it, um, um, middle of 64. Here's how it is, Zosimov begins. All this exile to hard labor and formerly with flogging does not reform anyone, does not correct their wills and above all does not even frighten almost any criminal and the number of crimes not only does not diminish but increase all the more surely you'll admit that and it turns out that society thus is not protected at all for although the harmful member is mechanically cut off and sent far away out of sight that's the state another criminal appears at once to take his place if anything protects society even in our time and even reforms the criminal himself and transforms him into a different person, again it's Christ's law alone, which manifests itself in the acknowledgement of one's own conscience. Because, and the issue here is, get rid of God, 
Man can do anything. There's no conscience. If there's an immortal soul, there's a God, and if he can, here's the assumption, and this takes us back to Scarlet Letter and the, the quarrel between Dimsdale and Chillingford, the physician. Remember when he said, tell me everything about yourself because I need that to cure you. And Dimsdale got outraged because he believed only God could heal sins. Zosim is saying only the church can, um, can reform a man. Only God can go to sins. So once again, here's this schism between the political and the religious. So what's at stake in this argument is not just church and state, it's this question of whether or not the state is capable of reforming criminal actions. And Zosima's position is that it can't, the only one that can <coughs> is God. And, and to support that he's saying, when men are converted in jail, or change or reform, it's because God has done something with them. So the issue here has to do with free will and the whole question of how man, how man deals with his sins, what can be done to help a man reform, okay? I want to leave it here. Um, you, you can, there's this one line where um, on 65, for example, I'll just touch on some lines here, but at the top of 65, though who knows perhaps a terrible thing would happen then, the loss of faith perhaps would occur in the desperate heart of the criminal, and what then? Jocelyn is arguing is it's only when the church becomes everything that it'll have the power to correct a person because only then he can excommunicate the person. And if the, and he goes to Fred's point, if, if he's outside the church, he, he's either going to deny it or correct himself and go back. But so long as we've got this split he's maintaining, it's, it's not going to help reform criminals. Um, the loss of faith perhaps would occur in the desperate heart of the criminal, but what then? But the church, like a mother tender and loving, withholds from active punishment, for even without her punishment, the wrongdoer is already too painfully punished by the state. Go down. The foreign criminal, they say, rarely repents, for even the modern theories themselves confirm in him the idea that his crime is not a crime, but only a rebellion against an unjustly oppressive force. If you look at modern theories on criminal activity, they're always in terms of psychology, a mother, a father, straighten those out, and everything will be okay. But to go to the depth of a sin is beyond psychology or sociology. That goes to the heart of our nature, our rebellion against Christ. So there's a metaphysical issue here at the center of this church-state argument, having to do with the nature of sin, the spiritual condition of the soul, the role of the state, the role of the church. You know, before, you know, I don't want to take, I don't want to take a line of argument, but just to repeat what I've been saying before. You remember in the West, we, we in the West, we have grown up with a s sense of compatibility between philosophy and religion. We even go so far, if you've read Thomas, you, know, you would know that um, a Catholic should grow up with some sense of natural law. That the natural law inherent in nature um, reflects God's divine law. We have a glimpse of it in scripture, but it relates ultimately, the source of it ultimately is God's law. A divine law was broken in the fall. We rebelled. Somebody who had to be both God and man had to answer it because it went against God. So we've got divine law, scripture, natural law, and positive law, the laws written in the books. According to our belief, those positive laws should be in accord with natural law and ultimately divine. That's in the West. 
So to support slavery legally would be to go against God's law. It's a bad law. To support abortion, to make laws supporting it, would be to go against God's law. To support abortion or um, homosexual marriages, to make a law supporting that would be ultimately a sin against God because it violates his law. There's no notion of that in this world. It's Holy Mother Russia, a serf peasant world with no sense of natural law, who looks at these church-state problems largely in terms you know, that we've just looked at in this chapter. I'm just throwing that in there for you to be aware because there's no, nobody's introducing that argument here. It's just, um, I could have just as well left it out, but I want you to at least be aware of it. But who did, Jay, did you, I can't, yeah. I was just gonna mention that that argument is still going on in places even today in one area is substance abuse treatment. Whether clinical social right. workers and therapists right. can achieve the same results or is the yielding to a higher power, which is the essence of AA and yes, NA, absolutely. whether that is what is absolutely, absolutely. necessary absolutely. for a person to change. Couldn't couldn't agree. I mean I those organizations wouldn't be in existence if you know if it didn't rest on that. Um, Anyway, let's hear. Now, I want to I, I want to stop for a second. That's and the, and and what they go on. I don't want to take any time, but clearly from what Ivan says, that he thinks of Rome as being um, an instance where the state has absorbed the church, and he thinks of the Catholic Church as an example of that. That's going to be the focus in the Grand Inquisitor. Now, I don't want to go there, but that's how important this church-state thing is for the whole work. When, when we get to the Grand Inquisitor, the Grand Inquisitor is going to be a cardinal who's heading up the Inquisition and who just executed almost a hundred <coughs> heretics the day before. So people are being punished for their sins then, okay? So this church-state thing is not just an abstraction. It goes to the, question, the metaphysical, the spiritual condition of sin itself. How can, how can it be corrected? And I'm so glad for Jesus' example because you all know, you were familiar with that. I want to introduce something new here for a second. Um, I've introduced this notion of Manipian satire. I, I mentioned it earlier. Manipian satire is a little bit different from ordinary satire, and it's not easily defined. I don't know of anybody who's given it a good definition, and some literary critics want to dismiss it. I, I think that's too bad. It's, it's, it's a loss. But generally speaking, it's different from the satire of an individual thing. Um, like a person in a play, if you looked at Voltaire or even Dante, um, Dante's closer to Manipian satire. But if you look at a play and you're aware that something's being satired in a moment, you, you identify with that person. Manipian satire, as close as I can get to it, is like a fractured mirror. It's like a fractured mirror. It's giving you a reflection of a whole but from different perspectives of different parts. So it very often produces a grotesque effect. So it's not a, just a one-to-one -one clear satire of a person. Let's see, can you think of anybody? <sighs> My mind isn't. Anyway, that's, that's as close as I can get, okay? Think of it as a mirror reflecting a whole, but it's in fragments, and so you're getting at something from different perspectives, and they're jarring and a little bit grotesque. It tends, it tends to be a satire of a general thing. It's more widespread, okay? Now, 
go back to Fyodor and Musev. Back to 41, you know, when, um, when, um, when Musev is making a fool of himself. Debbie's comment last week, and I thought was appropriate, I wanted to build on it though, but she said, by honestly admitting he's a buffoon, it makes it possible for him to get away with it and keep doing it. You know, and he does. He's just, he's just not daunted. And um, just to, 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 to make clear how important this is, when, you remember what happens when he returns to the seminary? Um, remember when everybody goes to dinner and then, um, He comes back. God bless. Page 89, 89-90. After, remember, after Dimitri breaks in, there's, there's a fight between Fyodor and Dimitri, and the meeting breaks up, and everybody goes off to dinner. Um, um, Theodore is going to go off and suddenly stops himself and says, I've already made a fool of myself. There's no reason not to go back and finish it. So he has no fear about going back. On page 89, he confronts all the men. He breaks in. And, and the priests, once again, are doing everything they can to make him feel at home. Um, 89. How vile, cried Theodore. Excuse me, the superior said suddenly. Of old it was said, and they began to speak against me many things and evil things, and I heard it said and said within myself, This is the medicine of Jesus, which has been sent me to heal my vain soul, and therefore we too humbly thank you, our precious guest. So partly they're pointing out his fault and trying to make him feel comfortable at the same time. And he bowed deeply to fear Fyodor. Tut tut humbug. Tut, follow this. Tut 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 humbug and old phrases old phrases and old sentences, old lies and conventional bows. We know these bows, a kiss on the lips and a dagger in the heart. This is from another German romantic uh, artist. I don't like falseness, fathers. I want the truth, and the truth is not in gudgeons. I've already declared as much. Father monks, why do you fast? Why do you expect a heavenly reward for that? For such a reward, I'll go start fasting too. No, holy monks, try being virtuous in life. Be useful to society without shutting yourself up in a monastery on other people's bread. Go down. A far cry from grudgeons. The food they're eating is not the food of St. Francis or Damien, who was celebrated this morning. Um, a, cry, a far cry from dudgeons. Uh, look at all these bottles the fathers have set out. Ha, 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 ha. And who provided all? The Russian peasants, the labor, bringing you to the pittance earned of by his callous hands, taking it from his family, from the needs of the state. You holy fathers are sucking the people's blood. Now hold on. When, go to uh, page um, 163, it's chapter one in book four. Alyosha has returned to the monastery after these embarrassing scenes with his father, he's upset because he loves Zosima. Um, and um, 
Father, this is so important. Father Zasimov, he's recalling the words. I, I think these are extraordinary. They're really important for the whole book. Um, this is Zasimov. Love one another, fathers, the elder taught, her, the, the elder taught, as far as Alyosha could recall afterwards. Love God's people, for we are not holier than those in the world because we've come here and shut ourselves within these walls. Now remember what Theodore just said to the monks. You're sucking people dry. I want, you know... By the very fact, uh, let's see, shut ourselves within these walls, but on the contrary, everyone who comes here, by the very fact that he has come already knows himself to be the worst than all those who are in the world, worse than all on earth. And the longer a monk lives within the walls, the more keenly he must be aware of it. For otherwise he had no reason to come here. The only reason to come here is to become clear that you're worse than all the people in the world, or you shouldn't be here. Now hold on to that because of what's going to happen when Zosima dies and his body lets out a stench. Watch what the monks do. But when he knows that he's not only worse than all those in the world, but is also guilty before all people on behalf of all, for all, <coughs> that is taking on Christ the way Christ took on us, for all human sins, the world's and each person's, only then will the goal of our unity be achieved. For you must first of all know that each of us is absolutely guilty on behalf of all and all the earth. He says in the middle of the page, and add at once, it's not my pride that I pray for it, Lord, for myself am more vile than all. Love God's people. Do not let newcomers draw your flock away. Because remember, most newcomers think the institution of the, the elders should be abolished. They want it gone. It belongs to an old superstitious world. Um, now we get this story of uh, Father Fairpont here. Remember, this is the man who can't fast enough. He, he, he lives on one loaf of bread every two weeks. And, you know, so on page 168, so he judges people on the basis of how well they fast or not. Now they're really, really denying themselves. Bottom 168, right, I can do without their bread. I don't need it at all. I can go uh, to the forest and live on mushrooms and berries, but they can't do without their bread here. That's why they're in bondage to the devil. Nowadays, these unclean ones say there's no need to fast so much. Arrogant and unclean is their reasoning. Ah, true, sighed the little monk. This is a visitor. Did you all see the devils around here? Pierpont asked. Around where? The monk asked. I was up at the superiors last year at Pentecost and haven't been back since. I saw one sitting on a monk's chest, hiding under his cassock with only his little horn sticking out. This is right out of Dante. This is right out of Dante's Inferno. Um, another monk had one peeking out of his pocket, looking shifty-eyed because he was afraid of me. Another one living in his stomach, his unclean belly, and there was one who had one hanging on his neck, clinging to him. He was carrying him around without even seeing him. And you could see the monk? Disbelief. Telling you, I see, I see throughout. And was leaving the superiors, I looked there was one hiding from behind the door, a real beefy one, because <laughs> he hadn't been fasting, obviously. A real beefy one, um, a yard and a half tall or more, with a thick tail, brown long, and he happened to stick the tip of it into the door jamb. And me being no fool, I suddenly slammed the door and shut and pitched his tail. He started squealing, struggling, and I crossed him to death with the sign of the cross. <laughs> Probably evaporates into nothing. So, um, and the guy's astonished, and, and Fairpont goes on to say he sees them everywhere. So he, he's awake, he sees something that other people don't see from this presentation. Okay. 
So in the beginning of the monastery, we get a, a look at a tension between these new progressive ideas in Musan and um, Fyodor. And when we go behind the scenes to see what the priests are doing from Father Fairpont's perspective, we suddenly get a different perspective on. I want to call that um, Manipian satire, okay? For this reason, um, most people when they read um, Brothers, when they come to Fyodor in these opening scenes, particularly if you get the background, where he's come from, his family, what he, the way he abandoned his kids for women and, you know, it's impossible to do any, but not like him. He's not a very likable person. Um, my question is this, what does he show us about this world in himself? He's clearly a character, a real character, but what does he show us in himself about the world of which he's a part? And we can say the same thing of Farapont in the, in the small community, this intimate community of the monks with each other. What, what do they image? And remember, when, when Musev keeps going back at Fyodor every time he wants to dissociate and make, make it clear that he has nothing to do with him because he's too embarrassed by him, he's too ashamed of him, Zosim is responsive, don't be ashamed. Because Zosim is not concerned about surface respectability, about how people appear. He takes it, he's among the worst, and his response to the world is to bring love no matter what form it takes. So what is Fyodor image for us? He's the father, the old one. He's produced these three sons. The story's about the, Kar the Karamazov family. The old man, we've talked about that, yeah, the, the part of, the, redeem, the unredeemed part of each of us that's called to be redeemed, and then the three sons and the struggles that they're having with each other in their world. What is Fyodor image? Tvali? No, no. Is he the old Adam? Well, he is, yes. What, what more? Nikki. By the way, Tell I loved you. Tell us in ourselves that we don't want to look at, but, you know, the, the, but it's partless. But Fyodor, I mean, he's, he's honest in, in the respect that he sees the evil within himself and around him. Yeah. And I can't, um, Zos, I can't pronounce that. Zosima? Yes. I mean, he acknowledges that evil uh, in himself and around him, but he has a trust in the power above him, Christ. Um, or alongside of him, since uh, it's Christ's okay, body. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but. That, you know, that saves us. That, that we are to come, that that's our example. Let me ask this There's question. There's a little Fyodor in all of us. Are you saying that facetiously? <laughs> no, no, I, no. I mean, in in terms of the Manipians satire, I mean, we're we're you, through all of that, we kind of see a little bit of Fyodor in all of the characters, and uh, Every, and, every and, one of the sons and all of them, says, all of them are, yeah. you know, except for Fyodor are trying to cover it up or reflect it in some way. I mean, we even 
Right. All of the characters, even... Well, even the monks. I mean, we're all... No, really not good. his family, not the sons. No, no, I'm just yeah, saying that, okay. you know, well, I mean, the other I, I don't know that they're... It's it's there, but it's, you know, it's 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 hard it's hard to see except as the as the, the story unfolds you begin to see it more but in in all of the characters except perhaps Alexi and Zosimo you 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 see it in all those characters but they're you know they're throwing up a smoke screen to try mm -hmm. to prevent prevent it from being seen yep let me ask the question differently to get it to, at the point I hope that gets us more to the center of this work when a culture is undergoing radical changes, and they are here, I hope it, that's clear. By the way, if it, Japan underwent the same kind of changes, the, the movie, Departures, was partly in that context. Um, I think India underwent that same kind of change. The, 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 the ones in which it was most apparent to my mind is Ireland, Catholic Ireland being uprooted then. The South in America, because when the South lost the Civil War, the North came in to impose its ways on, and a, and a culture died. <coughs> All of the Southern writers, we talked about this when we did Faulkner, there, there was an outpouring of artists at that moment. I made this point before. Every time a civilization is in danger of disappearing, there's this great outpouring of literature, of art. It's as if some, I don't think it's conscious, it's not somebody saying, we're gonna lose it all. It does, it's that you're in the middle of something and something happens that makes a person flooded with inspiration that makes him want to write. The Renaissance was that period. The Reformation had come in. The Copernican Revolution had come in. The Middle Ages were on their way out. Look at what happened. You can say the same thing in the 19th century, the crisis between science and religion. We looked at that with Melville, Scarlet Letter, the, the, the 19th century novel in Europe. Um, so the South, Ireland, Russia here, whenever a, a traditional culture undergoes radical changes, on, on what basis do people act? How do they know it's right? I'm asking this so seriously. How do you know it's right? When a code of behavior is gone, what do you do? I, I can't say this seriously enough. What do you do? You look for another. <laughs> but what do you, I mean, you're, you're lost. And, and I mean, one of the defining characteristics of the people, they're all lost in some ways. Um, you can even make a fool of yourself, I mean, trying to do something because you don't know what to do. If you're in a traditional society, you know the codes of behavior. Grow up in a small town. Go to a city that's in flux. I mean, some you hide behind the anonymity. I mean, that's partly what goes on. But more importantly for me right now is that when radical changes are in place, you don't know who you are anymore. How do, how do you know it's right? What do you turn to? There's no right there. And so often you fall back on what? On respectability. And what's clear in this book is respectability hides all these hypocrisies. It did in Scarlet Letter. We're in the middle of a crisis then. That's why Cawthorn's writing it. What did all the people in the, in the, the majority of uh, Puritans do? They conformed to the rules of the group. And on the basis of that, they condemned anybody different. So in ev every, every one of these worlds that we've been looking at, in Scarlet Letter, Moby Dick, and now here, um, we're, we're experiencing what happens when 
radical changes in traditional ways of acting are occurring. I take it a step farther for me. Give some thought to what's going on with women in our world today. Traditional roles are gone. I mean, I, the, I'm, I don't want to get into a political thing here, but particularly with abortion, but don't forget it. Look at what's gone on with women in the last 50 years. I mean, I, when I read this, I, 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 and I've not seen a man, I mean, I'm not familiar with modern literature, but I'm not, I'm not even aware of a woman who goes to spiritual depths like this. Can you even begin to imagine the spiritual disruptions or disconnections or the sense of disconnect going on women and souls today? I don't want to go there, and this is not a, but, but just take the point that I'm making, you know, that in, in these cultures that have been traditional worlds and then suddenly these changes come in, the dislocating effects. When you're there, what do you do? What's right? You're, you're in a mysterious world suddenly. So when I look at Dust or Theodore, I just want to make this point. I look at Theodore not just as a bad man and the old man. He's that. He's certainly that. But I also see him as a truth image. He's a reflection exactly of what's at the heart of this world. It's lost. He doesn't know what to do. He's trying to be truthful. He's trying to be a fool. He's absolutely lost. Misov, nothing but condemnations. Zosimov, never be ashamed. Never be ashamed. Be at peace. But above all, and he's saying this, and you know that Zosimov is serious. He's not laughing when he says this. Do not lie. Give up your places. Give up your drunkenness. So he's saying, don't do these things. These are not good, so it's not good to just do anything. He's saying, you know what to do. But I look at Zosimov as a figure. I, I, think, I think he's in everybody. I think, he's every, I think he's in everybody in America. I mean, we're, we're, a, we're a culture constantly, constantly changing. And particularly in the South, the changes that took place in the South in the 19th century were radical, tremendous changes as a culture. That's why there was this great Eudora Welty, Catherine Ann Porter, Flannery O'Connor, Faulkner. That's not all the poets, Alan Tate. That's not an accident. The North didn't come close to that. One of the great insights that came to all those poets, and they knew it, they said, when we lost the war, we realized we were guilty. And that's something the North has not learned. And you had this great outpouring of literature. So I just want to offer that as a thought. Take a look at Zosima. He's, he's not an attractive character at all. But I think he's a reflection of something at large in the world. And hold on, it's just and I think in some ways he he we need to be aware of the same thing in the context of the monks themselves in the tensions between <coughs> Casey and Ferapont and you know all the monks um, because um, we're going to see a real crisis take place when Zosima dies and his body gives off this. So everything isn't as it, as it appears. You know, Musov likes to think of himself as this respectable, he's progressive and he's modern and, and what we're, I think, if we're seeing this correctly, the, the fact that he gives so much importance to appearances is a, is a fault. Fyodor is an image of something breaking into that. It's just shattering. It's a culture. Yes. Here, Jane, so go. I want to ask a stupid question. No, there are no stupid. Don't do that. I, there are I, none. I, 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 I would like to know what you think is the conflict now. You're saying that, that we're in a, 
Well, let me just give you two examples. But and by the way, I, and I'm, bringing, I'm saying this earnestly. I want you to hear this for me. I don't think there are stupid questions. I want you to hear that seriously, because I just I do not believe that. That sometimes, sometimes, what seem to be the simplest questions always have to take us to something. And I'll bet responses here would be different. But let me just give you two, and then I want to go on. Um, one of them is the feminist movement, to what it's done with women, I mean, the changing roles of women and how unsettling that is, number one. What it's done to marriages, I mean, that in itself is. But a, a more major one at a political level, this is my personal thing, so I, hope, I don't want to get into a thing here, but I just offer it to you. In my understanding of American history, when I look at presidential races, um, I'm aware, I'm not aware of a situation like the one we're in today, at all, at all, not even close. Bef um, we, our country is founded on God. We know, we know that from, I mean, the con if you read the Constitution or the Declaration or our, you read any of our founding documents, God was there in all of it. Um, but you know, I hope, from the work that we've been doing, that as from the shift from the Christian Middle Ages to modernity and the Reformation and the taking away of the sacraments, and the emergence of the modern state, the modern state has taken on totalitarian powers and it's become utopian. It's become utopian in its character. It wants to answer everything. So one of the fruits, or one of the fruits, one of the products of that way of thinking is a conflict unlike any we've ever seen in America before. If you look back at the tensions or conflicts between Republican and Democratic parties, they've always been capable of reconciling somewhere because they had God in common. That's just a fact. Um, the, the fact that we went to Kennedy as a Catholic was a major revolution in our country in itself. But God's always been there in both <clears throat> parties. What I'm going to argue right now, some of you can disagree, and I don't want to get into an argument. What I want to do is just answer you because you asked the question and meant enough to you. This is my personal response. If you look at the conflict today, it's not a conflict between two parties, both of whom rest in God. It's a, a party that rests in God. It's conservative. I mean, that's what it should be. Even though there's a lot of varieties and groups to that. I, I don't want to, I'm simplifying this. But, but if you look at the left, it's a utopian world. And it's the product of a Marxist education in the last 40, 60 years. So that if you look at kids coming out of schools in the last... 60 years, say, they've been, they, so they didn't take history or weren't required, or literature the way we're doing it. They, in, they were required to take Freud, Marx, Darwin, and the political figure most important in that group were Freud or, or Marx and Hegel and others with him who helped shape his thinking. There's a, a list of names, there's a handful of names, but the most important one was Marx. If you, if you watch what people are doing on the left, they're working out of ideologies. An ideology is a system of the mind, like Marx, or Marxism, or Freudism, but Mar I'm thinking of Marxism. So what you've got on the left is a, is a party that's become more progressive, more forward-moving, like what we're watching in, in Brothers in the 19th century, or, I mean, 1900s, eight, sorry, in the 19th century. You've got people who are taking a position um, that, that believes that and it's, it's, it's Christian in its impulse. 
even, even if mistakenly, I believe, but it believes that if we can create a certain kind of order that we'll get rid of the marginalized, the poor, the poverty, the, you know, that we can take care of that here on earth. So it's utopian in that sense. It's trying to, it's trying to bring, it's trying to bring transcendent dental, transcendent, transcendent reality down to a temporal order and use politics to make it happen. So we're back in the England that we were talking about when we were talking about Henry and the Reformation, the fights between the Anglicans and the Presbyterians and getting power and forcing. So the conflict today for us, at least as I look at I mean, you're asking me, is unlike anything I've ever seen in American history. And I, it's hard for me to see it resolving because I don't see a common ground. If these people do not find a common ground, that battle's only going to get worse and worse and worse. That's my thinking. And I, I don't want, I, I'll give this just a few minutes because I don't want to, I mean, this, we can go everywhere with this, but. And I'm not, I don't argue with a, a word you said, but I would throw out there, because I've been thinking about this through reading all these books, we have no full comprehension of what the power of celebrity is doing to oh, us. God. You know, we, I, we talk about the three tempters in, in Murder at the Cathedral or the temptations in Brothers Karamazov. I think celebrity has become the fourth grand temptation. Fourth estate? I, I, I couldn't mean, agree more. We, we, we like people who are famous for being famous. I would argue the last two presidents got elected because they were celebrities, yeah. not because of any policy yeah. they advocated. And we are consumed by personality. And I don't know where we go with all that. I agree, it's, Jay. It's just, if, if you go back to the French Revolution and the estates, I mean, you could call the Hollywood the, um, the fourth estate. I mean, the power that's... I, I'm glad to see Hollywood taken apart right now because it's, it's, a, it's coming undone. Because I just think their power has been far in excess of what it should be. But it's, to me, it's a sign of a decadence in our world that we give those people that kind of power. But, well, free will is almost under attack. If you Sorry? I said free will is almost under attack because if we're getting so polarized that if you don't believe what I believe, there's something wrong with you. You, know, there, you mean allowing free will and differences? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right, right. Because, I mean, right. it used to be okay to debate things. Right. You know, like, okay, I, we, we have a difference. You have the right to believe what you believe. I have a right to believe what I believe. But... Let's debate that, and maybe one of us or right. both of us learn something Civilly. in the process. Civilly, right? We're that that's no longer no, allowed. Yeah, and I, I, for me, it's not a matter of, of free will, Fred. But I mean, it's there. I know, but for me, it's it's the it's partly the result of a utopian world that believes this is the right way, and anybody who doesn't believe that anybody who's traditional is back in a non-progressive is bigoted, prejudiced. You know. It's, a, it's Puritan, it's Puritanical in its view. It has to have everything perfect, and anybody who doesn't is belong, you know, support. It's just, so to me, that's not a small conflict in our time. It, it is, um, um, when I look at our culture, I just think the divisions, to me, are incredibly great. And, and I believe they've been there for the last 50, 75 years, they're not new. But everything that's happened has brought them to the surface. Because I think utopian views have been guiding us for you know, 75 years. It's just been, the, it's, if you look over in American history, you can see it. But it's come to the surface now, and it's right up front of us. Let's stop with this, because I don't want to go. Any comments on Manipian satire, or the way I'm looking at, um, at, uh, at um, 
Fyodor. Mike, the short answer to that, because we, we have to wind up here. Um, the short answer to that to me is he's not an intellectual, so he's not in his head like most everybody else is. He loves, and the source of his love is Christ, and I think he stands more with Christ than anybody else in the book. And when we get to the story, it's going to be important because we're going to learn he was on the verge of killing a man. Well, I mean, he, he, he shows, he's, he, and that's why he says, I'm the worst of the worst, and he's aware of his sins, and he carries them, and they help him because he can't forget, you know, that this is in him, and he wants to love with Christ. So, in one sense, he's the center of the book and with Alyosha, and I think Alyosha emerges more and more as the hero because he's rooted in Zosima. And Zosima is rooted in Christ, and this goes to another thing about breaking up a narrative line. Because when we get to um, the <coughs> Zasama biography, shortly it's in the middle of the book, we step out of narrative time and we go back into this man's life and um, it's impossible to read that section without feeling we're going back to scripture. Because that whole section is like a homily. That in the middle of this narrative, this is really important, we're getting, we're getting a, a presentation of events. This happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. In the middle of the novel, we've got a break going back to Zasov and his homilies. So, going to what you were saying, Frederick, we're going back to a word in Scripture coming to us. It's like a homily. It's like a series of homilies. You're in the middle of the book and you're hearing homilies. It's a voice. And it's towards the center of the book. And you know that that that's, that's something taking place outside the boundaries of the text that's entered into the text that shatters its time. It's no longer this. In this center is this word, and it comes through Zosima, who lives it, and Alyosha is growing into it. That's where we're going. Um, we'll do the Grand Inquisitor next time and pay close attention to um, the center part that I'm talking about, the story on Zosima, his past, and really especially to the chapters after because what happens when he dies and his body gives off this stench is going gonna, is gonna to lead to a crisis, for, a serious crisis for Alyosha. And a possible grace, a possible grace, but you'll have to look. Linda. Yes. How are you? Uh, I gotta be in the office at noon. Oh, you should go to bed. You should go home and go to bed. I already did that, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> didn't there? Didn't there? Oh. They were talking about messenger earlier. Wait, wait, wait. I want to hear you. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I want to hear you. I don't want to hear you.